Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, science fiction writer John Scalzi talked about his novel, The Consuming Fire. And this week, AWM program director Allison Sansoni sits down with Isabel Ibanez to chat about her Bolivian heritage, writing process, and her debut young adult fantasy novel, Woven in Moonlight. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. So thank you so much for being here again today. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the event that you did here this morning with the, with the students. Should I do this? Yeah, yes. Hi. Um, well, mainly it melted my heart completely, seeing all of their sweet faces and their interest in writing. I just think that's so awesome. I, this whole place is just magical to me, and I would have loved to have this growing up. And so seeing them sitting here, asking questions about the writing process, the themes of the book, um, yeah, it was truly special. Yeah. So they, they, high school. High school. Yeah. yeah. So they, they had some tough questions. So you guys have got a high bar tonight. <laughs> First, you know, the, the exhibit that we're, that we have in the program series that we have is, um, you know, it's about immigrant and refugee writers. So tell us a little bit about your background and how your family came to America. Yeah. Um, so my parents came, my, they came separately and they met over here, but they're both from Bolivia. Um, my father grew up in the Amazon, um, literally born there. And he was, uh, living in a village that was inaccessible by road. And so to go anywhere, he had to go by river in a canoe that he built himself. Um, and he desperately wanted to be a doctor. And so he eventually studied medicine in Bolivia and wanted to uh, finish his education here. Um, and literally... <laughs> did not know anything about the United States, did not speak the language, closed his eyes over um, a map of the United States, and his finger landed on Detroit. So he came here, saw snow for the very first time, and learned how to speak English through Sesame Street. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it is, yeah. And then my mom, she, um, her parents were in the position to be able to send her to school here, so she actually went to Georgetown. And they met in Miami through... Um, I guess they were set up, so, and they were, yeah, that's what happened, and they're here. And did he become a doctor? And he became a doctor. He just retired after 42 years. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. How, how did that influence of, you know, hearing that kind of magical origin story? Yeah. You know, how did that, um, how did that influence help you to become a writer and a storyteller? Yeah. Um, my parents were always hard, hard workers. Um, my father would work all day, and then we'd be having dinner, and he'd get called back to the hospital. Um, and so I, both of them exhibited a tremendous work ethic that I absolutely admired. They were both ambitious and supportive of each other. My mom, um, she worked in my father's practice, and he, I mean, she's the most organized person ever. I mean, she really could run a country, so she ran that office and kept him like completely above board. But um, so together I saw them uh, working and um, like just thriving in this country. And I loved their ambition. I loved their drive. And uh, my father 
because of where he grew up, I'm not sure, but he's always been deeply romantic, kind of like this philosopher, and he just loved, loved the arts. And so um, he never wanted either of his children to pursue medicine. He just wanted us to pursue whatever our passion was. And so that was fostered and... Um, I really was encouraged and very supported for pursuing a writing career. Yeah. yeah. What were some of the, the books that you loved um, to read growing up? Um, I was a voracious reader. Um, I just remember as a young kid just reading whatever was in the house and then begging my mom to take me to the bookstore. And really, um, my first language was Spanish. And then I went to school, and little by little, I perfected Spanglish. So I speak Spanish, but really I'm fluent in Spanglish. So, um, yeah, and I grew up reading a variety of things, but I remember falling in love with Agatha Christie and I read through her entire collection when I was 11, I think. That's some heavy reading for an 11 year old. (laughs) Was it? That's what I wanted her biography for my 11th birthday. And my, (laughs) my sweet mother went to Barnes and Noble and picked it up for me. So I, I read a I read a lot of things. Um, when I was fourteen, I started reading Harry Potter, and that was, you know, a truly magical experience. And I grew up with the books, and um, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia for sure, absolutely. C.S. Lewis was, you know, yeah, you know. So um, I think the point was though that I had an appetite for all kinds of story. I loved story. I loved the adventure. I loved the characters and where they started and then where they ended up. So I just read a lot. You actually went to um, went to art and illustration before you came to writing. Um, I studied creative writing first. And I really, um, you know, you, you go through creative writing and you think, I'm going to be this amazing writer. And it didn't work out. That's fine. And so I was trying to pursue or think of what else I could do. And I went back to school for illustration and design. I was thinking I was going to be a children's book illustrator, but I somehow fell into designing greeting cards, which was a better fit. So (laughs) I spent a few years doing greeting cards and then um, realized that bug never left me. And I got married. We went on a honeymoon to um, uh, Jamaica and I thought of this really cool Latina pirate story and fell back into writing. So that's how, that's how the journey happened. Yeah. 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 So this, um, this particular book is that, did that start out as that pirate story? No. Oh no. That pirate (laughs) story should never see the light of day. Quite a lot. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, completely. No, uh, that pirate story, I actually have a fondness for it. It's absolute rubbish. Um, should never see the light of day, but it was a practice book. It got my feet wet. It, I got reacquainted with the process and joy of writing a story, the love hate relationship. So, um, I got it out of my system and then I sat down for real and thought, what do I really want to write? And it wasn't a Latina pirate story. I wanted to write about Bolivia. I wanted to write about my upbringing and my culture and, um, the foods that I was eating and the language I was speaking. So this felt truer. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the this particular story and what it means to you. Oh, man. Um, I love this story because my brother and I were the only ones that were born here, and everyone else is in Bolivia. I have something like 27 first cousins, and I, for 
a few years, longer than a few years, there's just been a lot of political upheaval in the country, a lot of fear, um, a lot of uncertainty on what's going to happen for Bolivia's future. And Bolivia has this um, long history, kind of tragic, of oppression and colonialism and uh, being conquered. And, and so I, I was very much inspired by its history and then kind of uh, telling a story that ran parallel to what's going on right now in Bolivia, um, especially because it was impacting my family. And I've had family members who have gone onto the streets in Bolivia protesting and wanting uh, wanting a better future. Um, and so I, being here and not being able to be there, I wanted to write my own kind of protest, my own kind of rebellion. And so I started thinking about a character who could really carry that kind of story. And I picked someone that I felt um, that had the most change, that could inspire change and also exhibit an internal change. That's what was interesting to me. And so the story is about a decoy condesa, which is Spanish for countess, and she infiltrates this uh, corrupt government, and she sends um, coded messages back to the rebels through her weaving, which is magical. So I very much wanted to make sure that this story was telling um, and describing and alluding to some of the events that have happened in Bolivia, but also highlighting its very tragic history. Yeah. yeah. How did you balance the the real and the fictional? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I took what was real, I took events that were happening, and I um, fit them into this fantasy world that heavily inspired by Bolivia. And I kind of, um, I wanted to amplify them and to kind of dress them in a fantastical way. So... There are events that happen, there are plot points that happen in Woven in Moonlight that have happened in Bolivia, but set in this world, I was able to um, twist it and make it a little bit magical, and um, balancing that, balancing that, I felt like I was telling a story that could read like a fairy tale, but it's grim, and there are some real-life consequences to it, and so... No matter how pretty I made it, I made sure that um, I was also talking about the real stuff, the stuff that's hard and doesn't end in a pretty bow. Yeah. 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 How, there are three languages in the book. Yes. And so how do you, do you write in, in English and, and in Spanish? Or how does your, how does your work in those multiple languages yeah. affect the writing? So, um, I, okay, so for my first language, Spanish, it was very auditory. I never sat down and studied Spanish. Um, but I can, I can, understand everything that my parents, my family, everybody was saying, and I speak it, uh, but I've never written in it. And um, so whenever I was writing the story, I wrote it in English, but I also realized that these characters, I didn't want them to speak 100% English. I wanted them to sound like me. And so I gave them, you know, this ability to, to talk in Spanglish and um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of, of things that I chose because it reflected me personally and my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are there things that you found yourself more at ease conveying in Spanish versus English? Yes, the food. <laughs> <laughs> let's, 
let's talk about the food for a minute because I've never been so hungry reading a book in my entire life. I, I got to the end, like you said, this, you know, this morning when I said, Oh, I finished the book and you said, did you immediately Google some Bolivian restaurants? Because the, the food, the descriptions of food in this book are just luscious. And so were you hungry all the time? Yeah, I was hungry. I was so hungry. I was craving all the foods that I wanted to eat. Uh, you know, I grew up eating. Um, okay. So I thought, I just thought, I, as a reader growing up, I never saw any of the, the foods that I grew up eating. I so desperately wanted to talk about how great Bolivian food is because it's very rare that you find a Bolivian restaurant over here. So, you know, I, I, I needed to include it. But more than that, when I was creating this world, I felt like the easiest way to go and you get to, you get to experience the country from a plate. So I felt like that was the easiest, fastest way to immerse um, a reader into this world, was talking about the food. And it mattered so much to me that I begged my editor to include a food glossary at the back. So there are four pages. You're welcome. <laughs> no recipes, though. <laughs> no recipes, but maybe, you know, in the second book, maybe. <laughs> well, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, that that was one of the ways that you made your characters feel real. Yes. Was that, you know, they're always hungry. Yes. I always get concerned in books when the characters don't stop to eat something. I never understood why I never understood why I wasn't reading about what, what they were eating. You know, and I, I also felt very concerned. I'm like, please sit down and have a snack because you've been fighting all day. You must be so tired. Yeah. Yeah. There should have been many, many, many more lunch breaks in the Lord of the Rings. Yes. You know, all we, we had but we the the everybody remembers that point when um, the hobbits are talking about Elevency and noon mm-hmm. and like they like everybody remembers that yeah. because it was like oh I relate to that yes I want several meals in a day yeah everyone's <laughs> hungry by eleven o'clock no yes. matter where you're from it's not <laughs> true <laughs> yeah why is it important to you know for people to be able to see themselves in stories oh man I think everybody wants to see themselves as a hero you know and. Um, at least for me, I felt like, man, if I'm writing this story, someone else might read it with a similar upbringing or at least a culture they can connect to because it's adjacent and think, man, I feel so seen. There is something really neat about being able to read a story and connect and be able to say, man, me too. You know, like I, I really... I really wanted that because that's how you make friends too. You connect over uh, common interests. You connect over things that, oh, you love this or you grew up saying this or you grew up eating this. Me too. And there's this bond. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to bond with a story. Yeah. Were there books that, you know, either, you know, things that you read here, you know, you mentioned some, but were there books uh, when you were in Bolivia, when you were visiting, were there books there that you connected with? Um, (laughs) so, you know, I heard a lot of stories. I didn't read a lot of, um, I didn't read a lot of books. I don't have memories of ever visiting a library or a bookstore. And I don't know if it's because there isn't a long tradition of really relishing in a novel or story. I don't remember, but I do remember hearing a lot of stories and hearing how, um, you know, my father would tell a particular legend that he would hear growing up where he did. And so there was a lot that I heard auditory, but I didn't read a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was more of an an oral tradition. Mm -hmm. More of an oral tradition. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's such a longing for home in this book. You know, the, the, the Dikai mm-hmm. Kundesa is, is trying to, she's trying to square her own desires with her desires for her people mm-hmm. and for her friends and yeah. her family. And was some of that, you know, your, your own experience in moving back and forth between Bolivia and America? Yeah. So I, um, I grew up since I was a baby all the way until I was 18. My parents would ship my brother and I to Bolivia for three months out of the year. Literally school would end and that same day I would be on a flight and I would be gone in Bolivia. Um, and so I, I like my summers were spent there and, and it was interesting. I felt like I became a different Isabel almost. Um, I mean, in the States, I would want to fit in and belong and, and, you know, talk about Britney Spears or whatever people were watching and pop culture. And then I would leave and, and it would be completely a different world. And so home sort of felt like two places and I had to balance balance both of them. I didn't really, um, I didn't, those two identities like Isabel in Bolivia and then Isabel in the States, they didn't really converge until much later until I accepted kind of both halves and just accepted. I am, I'm the daughter of immigrants and I'm, I am American, but I am also Bolivian. And, um, and I think that's when I realized that a part of that, part of the journey is accepting those two halves and just, this is who I am. Yeah. Where are the places, or maybe it's people, who make you feel most at home now? Oh, you know, um, always going home to the to the house that I grew up in. That always makes me feel like home. Um, my grandparents in Bolivia they have this apartment in El Prado. That also feels like home. I know that apartment every square inch. And then I also know to take down the elevator and cross the street and you'll get some delicious salteñas. So there are, there are comforts and things that I associate with home and sense. Um, but it's also the people, you know. So I think that people make a home to me. And I always, I always um, just have a, a sense of security when I'm around them. Yeah. So when you, you know, when you were writing this book, were you concerned about how it would be received by your Bolivian community, your Bolivian family? Yes and no. Um, at times I did because, um, to my knowledge, and someone can correct me with Google, but to my knowledge, I don't know if there is any other young adult Bolivian fantasy out there and that felt that feels like a lot of pressure to get yeah to to get it right um so sure I think that I did off and on but the other thing too is that um this is this is my experience and my story and that's okay I don't have to answer every question I don't have to tell every story I'm sitting here and I'm only telling this angle this experience this was this was me, and it's valid and valuable, and that's okay. So, when I did start to feel pressure, that's what I would tell myself because every story matters, and there's room for all of them. How have they responded to the book? <laughs> um, so, it's going to be translated into Spanish at some point. So, I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that people in Bolivia will have access to it for sure. I have cousins who speak English and they're currently reading it and they're, they've all just been so excited and they've been talking about it, of course. Um, 
and then, you know, there's this really sweet moment when they're reading the book and they reach out to me and they're like, oh, you're talking about salteñas, which is a kind of Bolivian empanada that's so delicious. Oh, oh somebody knows. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're making us all hungry here tonight. We should have ordered in. You're right. We really should have. They're so delicious. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was there a passage from the book that you'd like to... Yes to read oh i don't know or if i can have, read it but i would love read. for you to read it oh gosh okay we we did this this morning so that we could preserve isabel's voice for some of her other events as well and i said it's 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 very nerve-wracking reading someone else she did words such a good job in front and of you all are gonna love it, it. hopefully i don't want to it's presume. entirely due to the words so um yeah, there's this section in the book. Um, so the main character, she is this decoy, and so she's been trained to protect herself and to protect her condesa. Um, but I also gave her this ability to weave, which is such a beautiful Bolivian tradition. And um, one of my favorite passages from the book is when she sits down, she's sitting in front of the loom, and she's by herself. She can be just herself, and she is... Um, being able to be completely free from this duty that's weighing on our shoulders. The loom sits near an arched window, close enough to bathe in Luna's moonlight, but not close enough for the heights to make me queasy. The room is far removed from everyone else, making it easier to weave without any distraction. My fingers twitch. I want to weave. No, I need to. With my heart thudding, I grab a bundle of the snow-white wool and tie knots on the top and bottom pegs. Once the loom is properly warped, I gather more wool. I start at the top, threading the strands over and under to create diamond-shaped lights peppering the evening sky. As I work, moonlight glints around me, growing brighter, as if peering over my shoulder to watch me work. My fingers blur as I move from left to right and back again. When I finish dotting the tapestry with twinkly lights, it's ready for my magic thread, the one only I can make, the one made of moonlight. My fingers tingle and I reach for a ray of silver light, feel it glide over my hand like putting an arm through a sleeve. The moonlight slants, turning supple and smooth, bending and twisting as it lengthens. My breath catches. No matter how many times I use Luna's rays to make thread, it always manages to surprise me. The shimmer of magic courses through me, delighting the fabric of my soul. I work the incandescent thread over and under again, building a scene of the night sky. The moonlight turns to moon dust as I weave, fluttering to the stone floor like falling snowflakes. In what feels like minutes, a new tapestry winks back at me, a glittering silver work of art that lights up the small room. Pools of moon dust gather at my feet as if I've wandered into winter. My neck and shoulders stiffen, a telltale sign that I've once again lost track of time. The pain is worth it. While I weave, life's troubles melt away. Worry about Anna, our lack of food, and the infernal yaksins. I pick up the strand to finish the bottom row. You did such a great job. See, didn't she do a great job? I feel like every time we do one of these, everybody's Goodreads queue just gets a little bit longer, (laughs) which is a good thing. That's what we're here for. Yes, absolutely. You know, more books. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Y'all were wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week on Labor Day to hear writer and popular historian Michelle Duster discuss the legacy of her great-grandmother, 
the unflinching and uncompromising Ida B. Wells, herself a staunch supporter of workers' rights and labor movements. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.